Please take your Bibles and turn with me once again to Luke chapter 1. As we began to look at last time, the gospel according to Luke, we now begin in earnest with Luke's account of the things that happened among him and his fellow Christians, the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And with it, we go all the way back to the beginning of the account of the life of Christ. In fact, even before the life of Christ or before his birth. And we come to a passage that is about the one that came before Jesus Christ, none other than John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, we will read verses 5 through 25 this morning. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For... I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me. In the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Well, as I said a moment ago, when we arrive at the life of Jesus Christ as recorded by Luke, we go all the way back to the earliest time of any of the accounts of the earthly activities concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John, of course, begins with the statement that goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And this same word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is to say, the eternal son of God took on the form as well of human flesh when he came into the world. John describes what was happening long ago. But in terms of the actual events of then how God began to work out this redemptive plan in history and specifically recorded the events of the life of Christ and his ministry in the gospel accounts, Luke goes back the earliest, somewhere around the year 6, maybe even 7 BC, and introduces us to a man and to a couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth, who would become the parents of a special man named John, the man that we would come to know as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, known for his ministry of preaching a baptism of repentance from sins. And as we find in this passage, it is he who was sent by God to go before the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sent in front of Jesus to get the people ready. We all understand why such a thing would be needed. There are tons and tons of ways where one person prepares someone else for something else. If you've ever been to a show or a concert or an event that is uh, started out by an MC, a master of ceremonies, you know that that person will come out on stage and they'll speak to the crowd, to the people who are in attendance, and they'll ask questions and they'll get them cheering and do all kinds of things to get them excited, to get the intensity level and the excitement level amped up before the real performer comes out. This is what John was for Jesus. And he's going to be a very special kind of forerunner, one who is great in God's sight. But even before John comes into the world, and even before he starts to minister, and we'll see the account of his life in chapter 3, there is a significant and miraculous and gracious way that God brings him into the world. Even his parents are notable servants of the Lord, and we read about them here. And what we find in this passage is that God both makes and keeps a promise to these faithful servants... To give them a son who will also be God's special servant. God makes and keeps a promise to his faithful servants to give them a son who will be also God's special servant. And so this is a passage about the promised birth of John. And we begin by turning our eyes upon what we will call a righteous and yet childless couple. A righteous but childless couple Beginning in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias. This refers to Herod the Great. Many uh, kings were in this area and during this period by the name of Herod over the years. But this is Herod the Great, a Jew who ruled on behalf of Rome from the year 37 all the way up through the year 4. BC, And he ruled over the territory of Judea, which would have included Jerusalem, and not only the more uh, smaller, more uh, typically known territory of Judea, such as the tribe of Judah inhabited in the tribes of Israel, but also, uh, according to one writer, the area of Galilee uh, to the north, much of Perea, and then much of Syria as well. And this is likely taking place toward the end of Herod's reign because we find that Herod died not long after Jesus was born in Matthew chapter 2. And so this is just a few years before that 4 BC period, probably again in the year 6 
or seven. Now, in these days, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. Abijah was one of the priests who had returned from the exile in Babylon. We learned recently about the book of Daniel. We studied through that. And there were a number of priests who went back to Jerusalem, as recorded in the book of Nehemiah, for example. Uh, He returned with Zerubbabel. And according to uh, Nehemiah 12.4, he was in that group. And according to Nehemiah 10, verse 7, he signed an agreement along with many other priests that they would keep the law of Moses. And he was involved in that process. He had a wife who was also of priestly descent, not that the women could be priests, but that was from the same, uh, from the same uh, ancestry. She was from the daughters of Aaron. Aaron, of course, being the brother of Moses and being the first high priest over Israel so that these two were within the same tribe and they were within they were very close in that sense and they both had this very privileged um, upbringing this distinct upbringing so Zacharias and Elizabeth had a very special background they didn't just though have a significant lineage they also had something even more important according to verse 6 they were both righteous In the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, this is a very, very strong statement, isn't it? They are both righteous in the sight of God. When you hear that, what questions does that raise in your mind? And what theological question does that raise in your mind? Well, if you understand the gospel, then it should raise this question immediately, which says, how can they be said to be righteous in the sight of God when the Bible says something else about people being righteous? Namely, there is none righteous. There is not even one. Romans chapter 3, let's look at this for a moment because this is an important, uh, this is important nuance to our theology. Over in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3, the apostle Paul, who Luke traveled with for much of his life, is trying to tell the Roman believers about his gospel that he preaches. And we find things like this. Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. He goes on. To say that there is another way then that because none of us are righteous in our character and in our conduct before God, there's another way that we have to attain this righteousness. Verse 21 says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament, that is, tells us about it. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is to say, everyone, Jews, Greeks, today churchgoers and non-churchgoers, everyone has fallen short of God's glory. Everyone has sinned and everyone needs this. And no one can work their way to God because we've already missed that opportunity. We've already sinned and rejected that chance to please God with our lives in terms of being perfectly righteous throughout it. And so therefore... Salvation must come another way. And what this says is it must come through faith. And yet it's not just that it must come through faith. It's also that it does come through faith. And it can come through faith. And that everyone who believes, all who believe, it says, receive the righteousness of God through faith. 
because verse 24 says we are justified, that is declared to be righteous, treated as perfectly righteous, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus died on a cross and he redeemed people by his blood and gave as a gift righteousness to everyone who believes, such that instead of coming before God on the basis of our deeds and our merits, we come to God and we have a right standing with him and we are forgiven of our sins by virtue of the work that Jesus Christ has done. Paul goes on to defend this throughout the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Romans. Now Paul, uh, excuse me, Luke writing his gospel understands these things. Again, Luke has been Paul's traveling companion for much of, uh, much of his life and much of his ministry. He wrote after this the book of Acts. So he knows what Paul preached. He knows where he went. He knows his message. He's with him when he preaches the gospel of justification by faith. He was with Paul when he received the book of Philippians, for example, which talks about counting all things as lost for the sake of knowing Christ and receiving a righteousness that doesn't come on our own from works of the law, but faith, through faith, which comes from God on the basis of faith. So he understands all of this, and yet he still can look at Zacharias and Elizabeth and say, these are righteous people who do what God says. He doesn't have to say that because we are only justified by faith, and because none of us are perfectly righteous in our character, apart from God's grace, this doesn't mean that people cannot live a really, truly, and righteous life. Elizabeth and Zacharias were not people who did not need a savior. They were not people who didn't need mercy. They were not people who didn't need forgiveness. They were not people who could save themselves. And yet there is a way of describing their life that is not inconsistent with that need for us to have a perfect righteousness credited to us by virtue of the gift of God apart from our works. So we need to hold these two things in our hands at the same time. The fact that God must gift us a righteous standing before him, and yet we can pursue and must strive to live a righteous life, and that someone can live in such a godly way as that it could be said about them that they're righteous in the sight of God, and they walk blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. We see this as well in the book of Job, when Job was in fact singled out by none other than Satan, because Satan recognized that he was serving God, and God himself pointed out and said, hey, do you notice my servant Job? He is righteous and blameless and upright. He does what I say. Now, of course, both Job and, as we'll see, Zacharias had issues of unbelief in response to certain things that came upon them. Which should be a clear indication that to be righteous and blameless and upright in the way that Luke is describing does not mean that you never sin in any way. But there is a way in which they are described here as being people who are characteristically, devotedly righteous before God in their character. While at the same time being righteous in their standing before God only because God is gracious and he justifies everyone by faith who believes. So we believe in the Lord Jesus for our salvation and our forgiveness and our standing. And then we follow him faithfully and we aspire to be called righteous in our walk, in our character before God. And wouldn't it be great if this could be said of all of us, that we are righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. Well, it was true of them. They were faithful people. 
And yet it says, verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. She is unable to conceive a child. They had no son nor daughter. And uh, they were now old. So this has become unlikely, really, from their perspective. It seems impossible. It doesn't say how old they are, just old enough that they would be past childbearing age. Now, this is seen here in this verse as a negative thing. We'll find here in a few verses that evidently Zacharias has been praying that he would have a child, perhaps even specifically praying that he would have a son. But this might be surprising to people to see that this was in some way connected with a lack of blessing. Because in our day, more and more our culture has come to see children as a burden rather than a blessing. And our society has rejected what the word of God says and clearly teaches. For example, in Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. There are a number of societal factors that have come together to convince many people that children are largely a burden to be avoided. And yet this is not what the Bible teaches. It does not teach that children are necessarily easy. It doesn't teach that they don't require work to care for them. And it doesn't teach that they always bring blessing in every single way. There are many proverbs about the kinds of things that a child can do that can bring hardship to other people, even to their parents. And yet the default assumption, according to scripture, that was carried in this particular day as well, was that children are a blessing, that they are a good thing. And at the same time, the natural result of being married is that children are going to show up. And thus to be childless would have been viewed negatively. Sometimes... It was a direct curse, such as with one of David's wife, uh, Michal, who was said to have no child until the day of her birth, in direct connection with something that she had done wrong. But even when it wasn't as a, a consequence of something, it was still, uh, in some sense, a, a source of reproach and, and shame. Um, because people would feel, you know, are we, are we the only ones that don't have this? This is why at the end of the chapter, or excuse me, the end of the section, uh, Elizabeth will say in verse 25 that God bringing this child into her life takes away her disgrace among men. There is a, a way in which we can be disgraced or feel, uh, feel the weight of shame for something, even if that something is not the result of anything that is sinful or that we have done sinfully to bring that about, but just something that, is, that sticks out, that's unusual in a societal sense, or where everyone knows that you're missing a particular blessing of a various type, or where there's something's going on. And some of you feel that, not just with whether it's children or, or anything else, and you say, you know, there's, there's something that, uh, I think people notice this about me, or people think this about me. And here is God who recognizes this, and he says that this instance has nothing to do with anything that has been done wrong by these people. There is nothing that they've done wrong to deserve missing out on this blessing they desired of having children. And so this verse is very important in refuting what would have been the contemporary idea 
for Zechariah and Elizabeth, which is that righteousness and living the way God wants is basically going to result in you having a life that is healthy in some ways, where you're going to have what you need, where you are going to have a blessing like a child. And something that would be so exceptional to the rule, such an exception to the rule, would tend to be seen as maybe there is something going on in their life. Maybe, maybe there is some sin, and it's Job's friends all over again who come and say, uh, Job, hey, we're here for you, but sure you haven't done anything wrong? Are you, are you sure about that? There's got to be something, right? Or else you would not be going through this because we know the righteous don't suffer the way that you're suffering. And Job says, I haven't done anything. And God vindicates him in that book. Same thing here, but it's up front. He is vindicated. Zacharias and Elizabeth are vindicated and yet they still feel the weight of this. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that goes on today still as well. People here, hopefully, if you're in this room, you would reject the out-and-out prosperity gospel, which teaches that God intends for you to be rich and wealthy and just for everything in your life to go great, and you can have abundance, and you can have more than other people, and all you got to do is just believe God or maybe even speak it into existence or manifest it somehow, you know, or believe God for this. And then the only reason you wouldn't have that is because you don't have enough faith or you don't claim what God has promised. Uh, we, we reject that from Scripture for many, many reasons. But what about the little softer version of that? Where, you know, if I am righteous, then surely God will give me at least the basic things. You know, the main things that I want. Maybe I won't be rich, but I'm not going to have to worry about my job. You know, maybe I won't have... Uh, People in my family doing amazing things for God, but, you know, at least they're, they're going to be healthy. You know, at least they won't have medical problems or something like that. This is the kind of thing that we can make ourselves believe, and we can just slip into it. And, again, this is not what this teaches. These people were very righteous, and the fact that they were having something that they did not want in terms of their life circumstances was zero indication that they had done anything wrong, no matter what other people would have been tempted to believe about them. <clears throat> now, on the other side of this, we need to be careful that we don't live in crippling fear that if we do something wrong, that we will have all of our blessings taken away. Zacharias later is going to be disciplined for something he did. Uh, God does discipline people, so it is good to be cautious. But there's just not a one-to-one -one connection between I do a bad thing and God does a bad thing to me. And I do a good thing and God does a good thing for me. That's not the way that this life works. God does reward people according to their deeds, but he does so in the life to come. God does judge people according to what they do. He doesn't punish us for our sins and penalize us by sending us to hell. But he does have a day in which we will all give an account and we will be rewarded for what we have done by his grace. And yet, we ought to be careful that we don't just think that righteousness brings blessing. Sin brings losing blessing. God is gracious. And God is also not a drink machine that we just push a button and the thing we want comes out if we just do the motions correctly. So here we are with two righteous people who do not have the very thing that they wanted. And uh, this leads us to a particular circumstance in their lives that's going to become very, very monumental both in their lives and in redemptive history. This is a priest's service for the people verse 8 a priest's service for the people 
verse 9, excuse me, verse 8. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, um, that he was chosen, excuse me, according to the custom of the priestly office, that he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. I want you to notice here just at the outset, uh, notice the, the action words here. Now, it happened, and in verse 9, he was chosen by lot. Listen to that language. Isn't that interesting? It happened. Chosen by lot. There is an evident randomness to this on the surface that we know from the account is actually not random at all. It is actually the work of God. It is God's work to oversee what we think of as the random events of this life. We had a men's conference this weekend. There were some door prizes that were given away. Some people got some cool tumblers and things like that. One of them had the famous quote from the theologian John Owen, uh, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you with a little skull on the mug. Uh, and that was a fantastic prize, but uh, at least in my own opinion, hopefully in the opinion of the recipient of that gift. But in order to give those out, there was a random number generator that was used. And the website boasts of this being not just sort of a computerized, you know, in a certain order mathematical random number generator, but something that is truly random. You know, this is, this is not connected to some kind of formula or anything like that, but it is truly random. And of course, even that doesn't fall outside of the sovereign hand of God. Everything that happens here to Zacharias is intentional. And this is very clear from what happens when he, he gets in there. He goes into the temple of the Lord, which at this time would have been, uh, would have been Herod's expanding temple. Um, when Jerusalem was destroyed and burned in the late 600s BC into the early 500s uh, in the three successive waves of Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, the temple would have been uh, destroyed, burned down, and eventually the people of Judah and uh, these people in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they went back and they started rebuilding the city and, and the temple and uh, they built what would be known as the second temple. The first had been built under King Solomon as a more permanent structure to replace and serve the same function as the tabernacle, which was commanded by Moses, uh, by God to Moses in the wilderness. So around 1400 BC, you have the original tabernacle. Around 1000 BC, you have the first temple that's destroyed. And then it's rebuilt uh, in the late 500s and onward. In, uh, for the second temple. Now, eventually, uh, when Herod comes into power, this thing is being rebuilt and the whole temple complex gets very, very large to the point where you might recall the story that we'll come across later in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is walking out of the temple with his disciples um, shortly before he is going to be executed. And they're looking around and saying, look at these buildings. Look at this temple complex. And Jesus says, you see this stuff? Not one stone is going to be left upon another. But it was very impressive. And Herod wanted to do this, not because he was a particularly devout person, but because we know what it's like when someone who is a ruler is able to put these things up as accomplishments. And, of course, the people would have loved him in many ways for, um, for prioritizing something like that. Uh, he was tasked with entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense, which would have taken place inside the holy place. He would have been in there 
alone. This ceremony took place in both morning and evening, so uh, sunrise and sunset, and the preparation started sometime earlier, this burning of incense. Now, the priestly system was set up this way. Uh, Daryl Bach helps us out here in understanding this. Besides the few festival weeks of Israel, there would have been 24 priestly divisions. And these divisions would cover two weeks each per year, one week at a time. Uh, and these, this, these, um, these rotations were divided into several different orders. A daily rotation involved anywhere from four to nine uh, priestly houses. And there were approximately... Um, about 18,000 priests in the rotation. Two people did this job daily. You run the math, and if one person goes in at a time, you go in about once every 25 years, which is about the same time as a priest would even be allowed to work before, uh, once they had started um, before their retirement. What this means is this is not a common event for anyone to get to do this, for Zacharias to get to do this. And this was his one shot at this. This would have been a very special day for him, a very important day. I mean, this is, you know, think of the place that that you have wanted to go your whole life and you get one time to go do this one task. This was it. This is literally a once in a lifetime moment. And yet God arranges all of these things such that this happens at the exact moment in time before he wants to bring John into the world, to bring Jesus into the world, following him. And he arranges the circumstances such that the lot chooses Zacharias. Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So he goes in to serve during his appointed time. And he goes to burn the incense. Meanwhile, verse 10 says he has something of an audience waiting for him. There are a number of witnesses to what's going on. The whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So this would have been in one sense a normal crowd. Uh, This is according to the appointed order of his division. So the nation as a whole would not have been gathered. Maybe as they would have been during something like Passover. But uh, but there are a number of people there. They are in prayer outside. There is in uh, scripture recorded the concept of an, an hour of prayer. Not so much that you're taking an hour long to do this. But that there is a time of prayer. The, the time on the clock. One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, whatever it might be. And uh, the prep for this incense offering, if it was the, the, the evening offering, which makes this more likely that people would have been around at this time, would have started in the mid-afternoon such that it would have overlapped with the 3 o'clock p.m. or ninth hour, hour of prayer. This is why the people would have been gathered outside for prayer. Acts chapter 3 verse 1 describes that very event happening. Prayer gathering, the hour of prayer at the ninth hour, uh, starting at 6 a.m. That gets you to 3 p.m. according to their custom. And so the whole multitude of the people are in prayer outside. And no doubt, these were not all first-timers. They would have been veterans. They would have known when the priest goes in, this is what happens. This is how long it takes. This is what we should expect to hear or maybe to see or to smell. And then he comes back out and then there will be a prayer to bless the people and so on. So they know what to expect. They know what the routine is going to be. And while it might not have been rote and mere formality, nonetheless, it was ritual. Now, while he's inside, something crazy happens. This is the angel's announcement to Zacharias. The angel's announcement to Zacharias. Verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him. An angel of the Lord 
appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. So he goes in, he's getting everything ready, and he's going to do this thing, and then, boom, here is an angel of the Lord. Now, how would you respond to such a situation? Probably exactly like Zacharias and almost everybody else in Scripture responded, which is what verse 12 tells us. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel. And just in case you think that that means he was a little worried or bothered, the rest of the verse tells us clearly, fear gripped him. Fear gripped him. Why? Well, first of all, no one else is supposed to be there. You know what that's like, right? When you think you're alone and then it turns out that you're not. Well, add to that the fact that angels are not exactly not scary. And who, in fact, is this angel? Well, we already read it. Verse 19, he says, I am who? Gabriel. Well, we've just seen Gabriel uh, a few weeks ago going through Daniel chapter 8 and 9. And what happens in Daniel 8 when Gabriel shows up to Daniel? Verse 17, so he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Here is the same angel that Daniel saw, and 500-some-odd years later, he shows up again and starts scaring people all over again. He brings the word of God, but he brings a little fear with him too. Now, the problem is he's, you know, he's like one of those characters in the movies that doesn't want to be scary in one sense, but he's, he is anyway. Um, that is part of his role. I'm not saying he's rejecting that, but that's not really his primary assignment is to come and scare people. He just is powerful. He's an angelic being. What else would you expect? Zacharias is not prepared for this. He, of course, like most of us, has never seen an angel before. He is not expecting this at all. I mean, that we know the story, but Zacharias is in no way, he has no reason to expect this whatsoever. This is just completely out of the blue, and he's full of fear. But the angel hasn't arrived to scare him. Rather, he has arrived to speak to him. And this brings us to his message for Zacharias. What is his message? Verse 13. But the angel said to him. The angel said to him. Let's just stop right there for a second. This is an extremely significant event. How long has it been since it could be said that anyone from God spoke to anyone? Well, at this point, the book of Malachi is given pre-400 BC, now it's been over 400 years of silence from God. Oh, sure, there have been things that have taken place. Many of the events that we learned about in Daniel 11, for example, have come to pass in the meantime. The kings of the north, you know, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, those kinds of people. Uh, But as far as actual new revelation, over 400 years. And yet in an instant, it's over and God is speaking again. This is the way that God works. Just because it's been a long time since he spoke doesn't mean that his word is not still true. And it doesn't mean that he can't still speak. And it doesn't mean that he is not acting and planning and going to do things and going to bring about his plan of redemption. And so now when we are, you know, uh, nearly 2,000 years since God spoke and left us the Bible, this doesn't mean that God is inactive or not planning or that he's failed on his promises. It's not a difference of category. It's just a difference of degree. 400 years versus 2,000 years, what really is the difference in those other than just one is larger than the other? So we may not know uh, anything new from God and from for some time since the apostles left us, and yet God's word from the past remains true and is living and active. The book of Hebrews tells us that the scripture still speaks even this very day in the form that it was written down. And God is still planning to make good on his plans. He is still there 
and he is still working, and he keeps his promises. The angel's message begins with a comfort. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Zacharias. The only command in the passage, by the way, this is an announcement to him. It's a promise of good news. He's not telling him to do anything except don't fear. I didn't come to you to bring bad things to you. In fact, I came to bring good things to you. Now, Zacharias may be saying, that's easy for you to say, Mr. Angel. Why don't you try standing in front of somebody scary like yourself and then see how it goes? But nonetheless, he is to recognize that he is there for the good, for the blessing of Zacharias. Um, And he says, your petition has been heard. Your petition has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. There is some speculation about what this petition may have been, but I think it's very clear from the context that he had been praying for a son. And God has now said this is going to happen. And then he gives him specific instructions and says, you are to name him John. Later on, when he actually does name him after he's born, the people are surprised that he is not naming him after himself um, or at least in the absence of him being able to tell them what to name him, he, they are surprised that he doesn't go with what they said. But he is given a specific name to name him, just as Jesus will be told what to be named uh, to his parents as well. So you are to give him the name John. And he says that when John is born, you'll have joy and gladness. And not just Zacharias being joyful, but many will rejoice at his birth. And the reason is in verse 15, because he's going to be a very special person. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. That's really, by the way, all that matters, isn't it? There's a lot of people that are great in the sight of the world. A lot of us are tempted to want to be great in the sight of our community, to be great in the sight of our peers, our neighbors, to be great in the sight of our classmates or coworkers. Or maybe the people on the internet. But this is true greatness. To be great in the sight of the Lord. Here he says he will drink no wine or liquor. This is not the thing that makes him great in the sight of the Lord. Perhaps some of you going, yeah, that's it. No wine or liquor. That's going to do it. Well, that's not what makes him great in the sight of the Lord. This was an exception to the norm even for uh, people who were of, uh, of godly character, uh, this was not forbidden and therefore he wouldn't drink wine. It was because he was being dedicated for a unique purpose. There were priests in the Bible who were commanded not to drink wine or liquor when they came to officiate in the temple service. Uh, there were even those who took a Nazarite vow to not drink any wine or liquor for some period of time. And there were even those then who did so from birth, including the great prophet Samuel of Israel. And this is very similar to Samuel's commission and what Samuel would be like. This indicates then dedication and consecration to a special office. In this case, John's would be that of a prophet. And in fitness for that role, he wouldn't just abstain from taking something in. He would also receive something else. He would be full of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal. Every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I think it's special for a few reasons. First of all, in the New Testament, every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit from the day of Pentecost onward. We uh, have the Holy Spirit, and yet in the Old Testament, this was not the case. The Spirit of God would come and go depending on a temporary purpose uh, to help someone be a ruler or a craftsman or a judge or a military leader or whatever it might be. 
but he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be so from his mother's womb, his whole life. This indicates, again, his greatness. Now, I think that's worth noting here as well, not that this will be a very much uh, credibility to certain people who would oppose this, but if John is filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb, that certainly says something about him being a person while yet in his mother's womb. John, as well, when he is in his sixth month in the womb, hears the voice of Mary when, uh, when she comes to greet Elizabeth. <clears throat> in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. The baby leaped in her womb, not called a fetus or some type of uh, lesser thing than that. There are some ramifications here for the fact that those who are in the womb are considered to be people yet before their birth. And though this passage doesn't deal with the timing of when life begins in that very specific technical sense, um, this person who is not yet born is nonetheless a person and said to be both a baby and a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit even from that time. So this has ramifications concerning the way that people think about the, uh, the nature of when, we, uh, when a life begins, and in particular with regard to the uh, biblical uh, permission or, as this would argue, not permission concerning abortion. And we ought to recognize that God recognizes life before it comes out of the womb and not just after so here, John, even though he is a unique person in this situation in terms of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, nonetheless is still a person at this time. And this has some significance even for debates in our own day. What is he going to do? Well, here, John is going to have a ministry of preparing people's hearts for the Lord. It says, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Uh, they have been, by implication, turned away from the Lord their God. Turned away from him. And what's fascinating about this is this. Consider the very setting of this story. What's going on at this time? Where is the nation of Israel? They are in the land. What are they doing? They are worshiping at the temple. What is Zechariah doing? He's participating in the lawful, Moses-commanded, sacrificial system. Everything seems fine, doesn't it? I mean, this, these people, they have gotten rid of idolatry. They've gotten rid of all these other religions. They are very fastidious in keeping the law of Moses, it seems. They have the temple. They have the sacrifices. They would adhere to the one true God. The people are gathered to pray. And yet... God sees the need not just to send a forerunner to say, hey, Jesus is coming to save you, and the way he's going to save you is politically and by forgiving the sins that you already know that you've done. He doesn't say that. He says, you're going to prepare the hearts of the people. The people's hearts are not ready for their Messiah to come. This is an amazing statement. What could be more holy than their current situation? They are religious. They've got the ceremonies. They're praying. They're following the law. What else could you need? And yet, 
as a nation, they need to be turned back to God. That's what he says in verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. They were not ready in their hearts. They were not turned. They were not repentant people. They were not prepared for the coming of the Lord. How many people, I wonder, today in our own city, maybe even in our own church gathering here this morning, how many do we find on Sunday mornings singing, praying, going through the motions, doing the kind of worship activities that are analogous to what was going on here? How many would say that there is one true God and that he is sending his Messiah and that he has sent his Messiah, Jesus Christ? And do you suppose that many of these people may not also find themselves in the situation described here, needing to be turned to the Lord? Because while they may identify with the God of the Bible and they may go through religious motions, they have not repented and turned their heart to the Lord. If this is you, understand that John is sent into the world to prepare people like you because he recognizes that it's not just doing some religious deeds and formality that is needed. And it's not even just identifying the one true God. It's not even just saying that the word of God is the word of God. It is turning from sin in repentance to God. And in our case, now that we know that Jesus Christ has been revealed to none other than Jesus Christ himself, turning away from your sins, softening your heart, humbling yourself before God and submitting to him as Lord. This is what John came to do, to go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is, by the way, taken from Malachi chapter 4, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, where God promises in this way, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Here, John is sent to the nation of Israel specifically to tell them, Look, the day of the Lord is coming. God is going to judge and you need to be ready for that. And you need to change your heart. And this explains how Jesus can later say in Matthew 11, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Not that John is a reincarnation of Elijah, but that John served the preparatory role before Jesus' first coming that Elijah was promised to have before the ultimate coming of Christ. They didn't know there would be two comings at that time. But in terms of the first advent of Jesus, John the Baptist served in that warning and preparatory role of calling for repentance. And to all who accepted it, it served the function that Elijah was meant to function, which is to turn the hearts of the people back so that they're ready for Jesus. And that is what he says the purpose was, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is what Jesus deserves, isn't it? It's not that he wants to show up and then you know, have to, have to fix everything. He wants to walk in, and rightly so, because this is what he deserves, to have the people who have been prepared for him. He doesn't show up, and they're going, oh, no, now we need to repent. Now we need to start to consider how we would get our act together. But instead, the people prepared for the Lord. And so this man was sent into the world, and he was sent to turn people's hearts. He was sent to be a messenger from God. But he hasn't been born just yet. And uh, his dad-to-be doesn't really think that he's going to be a dad-to-be. 
He's a little bit skeptical. Zacharias has his doubts. And so when we come back next time, we will look and see what Zacharias thought and had to say about this and how God responded to him and yet nonetheless fulfilled his promise. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, thank you for this morning and for this time in the word of God. Thank you that we can see your faithfulness to your promises. Thank you for your concern for people, your, your uh, gracious, gracious kindness. And we pray that you would help us to, in our hearts, be prepared. Those of us who have repented for the, uh, for the second coming of the Lord and those who have never turned from their sins, may they see the need to do that because Jesus Christ uh, is worthy of it. And we pray that you would help us to tell others the same thing. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.